Thank you very much. My story begins with Fort Laramie, 1851, and out of the eight signatory tribal nations, the Crow and the Lakota become very important because they signed a truce at Fort Laramie. And eight years later, that truce was broken as the war for the Powder River began between these two particular tribal nations. An explanation for why the Lakota moved into the Powder River has been that the Lakota destroyed their bison resources in the pursuit of the robe trade and had to move west and continue to take bison. An alternative, an alternative explanation looks at an environmental variable outside of tribal com control compelling them to seek Crow aid. But, but bison diplomacy failed, forcing the Lakota to take the territory. Tied to this story of disease and diplomacy was a generational rift between young Lakota men and older Lakota men that the peace created in 1851. The peace prohibited, if the terms were to be followed, young men from gaining status, standing, and reputation through raids against Crow and others. While the old man who signed the peace treaty had already gained status and standing and now had the ability to make political decisions. So you have a generational leadership gap that's going to be extremely crucial. The steps towards peace at Laramie 14, in 1851 begin with Father DeSmet's hand-drawn map, which many of you have seen, and is quite distorted, but when you put it on paper, it's quite accurate. And this is the land we want to deal with, and this is the one area that DeSmet actually missed, which is the Krill lands coming over Mandan and Arikara lands. But the boundaries are extremely close and tight. The other thing that the treaty did is it permitted the United States to have access to military sites and trails, but the U.S. does not get any land out of this treaty. No land is ceded, and what's basically done in terms of land is existing boundaries are confirmed, existing boundaries that all of the tribal nations have basically agreed to, and if you notice this eastern boundary of the Crow, it follows the Powder River. The other things that were agreed to would be the United States would pay annuities in compensation for Oregon Trailer's destruction of common pooled resources, bison, water, forage, timber. Once the treaty was signed, the Crow and the Lakota then practiced intermarriage because they were definitely serious about making this work. Robert Campbell, American fur trading proprietor at Fort Laramie witnessed the, the proceedings and two months later he said it's going to work I hope because of the intermarriage between the Lakota and the Crow. Something you often don't think about or even hear about in the histories of these two particular tribal nations. Things go well until 1856 when the continued destruction of bison along the Oregon Trail forces most of the Oglalas north to what is now known and called as the Black Hills. And when the Oglala moved north into the Black Hills, they discussed with their Minicoju friends and kin the right to hunt with them. And that also forces the 
Oglalas to enter into another treaty with the Crow. And the Oglala and the Crow enter into another compact, if you will, reaffirming what they had signed in 1851. And Blackfoot, the Crow leader, he is now becoming a brother-in-law to Oglala leader, man afraid of his horses. Now, things go well for about one more year, and then the tranquility ends. And what we notice in 1857 is all of the Lakota leave the Black Hills country and move east. Something had happened to break the peace. And what happened was a young Lakota man in this generational inner leadership battle over status and standing killed a Crow woman who was visiting the Minicoju camp in which White Robe was a resident. He killed her and no compensation was then paid for her death. So now the Crow are going to seek revenge. And the young crow men are very happy about this as well because now they got an avenue for status and standing that six years of peace had prevented them from achieving. So the underlying reason, reason for this 1857 killing was that the 1858 peace had created tension between the young men and the old men in both nations, Crow and Lakota. Six years of peace ended Crow raids and the cultural rewards that young men gained by raiding against the Crow and same for the Lakota young men. War was good, many of the Lakota said. It provides an avenue for our young men to get status and standing and the old men now have to enforce obedience and their influence with these young men is quite minimal, minimal at best. Unwittingly, the United States plays a hand in this. In 1857, the United States abandoned Fort Pier in the Missouri River, and the young Lakota men said, look, the U.S. is afraid of us. We don't have to worry about them. We don't have to worry about them at all. The next thing that happened in 1851 is that the promises of 18, in 1857, promises from 1851 start to get broken. The supply of goods and the quality delivered at Fort Pier are not good. They wanted to deliver the 1851 annuities at Fort Pier to keep the Lakota away from the Oregon Trail and potential enticement for conflict. The next thing that happens is not very good at all. In 1857, the United States pushes the Yankton, kin to the Lakota, to sign a treaty that would cede most of what is now eastern South Dakota from the Missouri River going east. That opens up the bison security issue for the Lakota. They are fearful that if they lose that eastern flank that their Yankton kin have been protecting, it will open it up to homesteaders, more whites, and that will create a bison security issue. So, short annuities, unfulfilled promises, the Fort Pier abandonment, Yankton land session rumors, and culturally sanctioned raids all encourage the young men to resume raiding and seek reputations. Then White Robe killed the Crow woman, rekindling the Crow-Lakota conflict. In August 1857, Upper Missouri River agent Redfield reported groups seeking horses' scalps from Fort Union, and he observed a party of 50 mounted crows returning from an expedition against the Lakota. 
As this piece of 1851 begins to unravel, the Americans add more salt into the festering wounds that the Lakota are feeling. In late summer 1857, Lieutenant Governor K. Warren surveys future military roads in Lakota country near the Black Hills, which were not permitted under the 1851 treaty. He's met by Lakota who tell him, don't come here to bribe us to not fight the Crow. Look, we talked with General Harney, William Harney at Fort Pier in 1856, and he said you should live at peace. And now Harney's fighting Mormons in Utah. Don't talk to us about peace. They claimed Warren was violating the 1851 treaty and the 1856 Harney negotiations. And Warren himself later admitted in his own diary, they were right. I was there spying on them. From the Black Hills, Warren traveled southeast to the Niobrara River and began to leave, to leave this very disputed country. But one thing that's important to remember for the story of the Powder River is in 1857, there was lots of bison in the Lakota lands between the Missouri River and the Black Hills from Fort Union South. Lots of bison. The Lakota were eating well. The Lakota were doing well on their lands. And as a result, the young men could continue to raid, and there's not a problem gaining provisions for the communities. Sufficient nice bison numbers enabled many northern Lakota to refuse 1851 treaty goods and said, we'll pick them up on the Missouri River when we have time. Now things are going to take a very, very, very bad turn. The 1858 treaty with the Yankton is signed. The open eastern flank is now there. A Ponca Treaty of 1858 is signed, and the United States now has a foothold to lands east of the west of the Missouri River. When Redfield delivered annuities at Fort Pier in the summer, he said, the Lakota are in a real ugly mood. And he feared, he feared there would be trouble. The truce with the Arikaras that the Lakota signed in 1851 as they were also one of the signatories ends. And in 1851, the summer of that year, the Lakota attacked the Arikara. Raids for horses, scalps, booty, honor, standing, status. And then in August of 1858, in August of 1858, right there, the Crow attacked a Lakota encampment on 1851 Lakota lands. This attack went bad for the Crow. Between the ill-fated Crow attack at Rainy Butte and the disastrous 1858 Lakota hunt that followed, something has to be explained and understood. The bounty of the previous bison years vanished when the northern Lakota winter robe trade and meat hunts began to fail in late 1858. Upper Missouri River Indian agent Bernard S. Schoonover reported a hunting disaster, writing, those returning from their late 1858-59 winter hunts are in a destitute condition. This is the time the Lakota hunt the most. And now they're destitute. They had found no game, none. They found no antelope, they found no elk, they found no black-tailed deer or bison. 
Schoonover added, the Lakota animals have disappeared. And those words he used, they disappeared from the hunting ground south of the bend of the Missouri River. Now, former Lakota agent, new Pegan agent, Colonel Elford J. Vaughn descended the Missouri River in the spring of 1859, and when he reached St. Louis, he told the local newspaper, there had been more bison than usual in the Blackfeet country up north, above Fort Benton, but further downstream on the Missouri, the Lakota fared much worse than other tribes. They are in a starving condition. Vaughn added, such to the extremity, of which they were driven, they, they were compelled to eat their horses and dogs to avoid absolute starvation, unquote. Why Lakota hunters, whose livelihood depends on managing bison for sustainability, were starving is an ecological question. Eating their horses exposed the extent of that disaster. The northern fur trade was, was flourishing. The St. Louis traders were reporting Phenomenal robes in the winter of 1858-59. The reason? An extraordinary harvest from Fort Benton. You have to be careful with fur trade numbers. If you look at total numbers, it doesn't take into account local animal variations, residents, etc. As this renewable resource was collapsing on Lakota territory, historic and contemporary observers have noted the Lakota increasing demand for buffalo and horses contributed to the declining and retreating bison populations. This story follows Garrett Hardin's tragedy of the commons and doesn't look at all the variables involved. And one of the variables it does not look at is an environmental condition. What happened? The search for an explanation for the demise of animals in Lakota territory turns on Malcolm Clark, a Fort Benton road trader. Malcolm Clark returned to St. Louis in the spring of 1860 and he reported disease has decimated the ruminant populations west and north of Fort Pier. Disease broke out, Clark wrote, among the buffalo, deer, and other game, destroying so many that its ravages were confined to the south side of the Missouri River, and the disease disappeared as quickly as it came. The Lakota resource system was durable and functioning. It could control hunters, but they could not control disease, natural wildfires, or weather conditions. Now, further aggravating the Lakota was the political statement they had made. We're not going to pick up these annuities at Fort Pierre because they're not worth picking up. So now they're even hungrier. Notice the economic dependency on the bison. Without bison, they faced reduced production, and along with the destruction of other game through disease, they had no supplemental safety net save eating their horses and their dogs, dogs which were eaten by the Lakota for ritual purposes. Clark, Vaughn, and Schoenhammer provided clues to identifying the disease. The outbreak occurred before a late 1858 fall hunt, and the weather was warm. Placing this calamity in those late warm days like we're having today, Based on the symptoms and my discussions with wildlife biologists who read the symptoms with great, great interest, they determined 
the culprit was most likely blue tongue. It's also known as catarrhal fever, sore muzzle, pseudo hoof and mouth disease, and a midge carries the virus, the midge bites the animal, transmitting the virus into the animal, into the host, and generations of midges that should have died lived during that warm fall of 1858. The midge quickly transfers the virus to the host, and the virus quickly creates internal hemorrhaging, and the host dies quite quickly. That warm, that warm fall and winter enabled a high number of midges to survive, and their deadly bites transmitted the virus to bison, deer, elk, and antelope, and in dense ruminant populations. One that happened in 2007 east of Billings, Montana, 75% of the deer died in 2007. So it's here. The following summer, Captain William F. Reynolds unknowingly confirmed the extent of this disaster. He left Fort Pier in the summer of 1859, and he traveled to the Black Hills, and he did not find one herd of bison. He saw a few antelope. He didn't find any black-tailed deer or elk. When he hit the Powder River country, he saw bison in numbers he couldn't believe. With no game and survival precarious, the Lakota now faced a crisis. The summer of 1859 approached, and in seeking help, the Minicoju Lonehorn tried ceremonial means to bring the bison back to no avail. Now the Lakota have to do something, and the only option they really have is Article 5 of the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1851. The Fort Laramie Treaty of 1851 provided this, and it's a very important provision. If you do not have animals to, on your territory, you can go to someone else's land and hunt. If you read the treaty very carefully, it states, quote, tribal nations did not surrender the privilege of hunting, fishing, or passing over any of the other territorial tracts of country heretofore described. And that meant the Lakota had access to Crow country if they did something. They have to follow the rules. And here's where an ideology of generosity is so important. Those who need, ask. Those who have, better give. Because if you deny those in need, they're going to take. And the Lakota went in the summer of 1859 to the Powder River and asked the Crow, will you let us hunt with you? The Crow rationally said no. Now the Lakota have to take. The Crow were jealous of intrusion and they also feared for their own bison herds. But the Lakota and their Cheyenne allies persistently in their visit asked for a share of the bison. The Crow refusal resulted in the bison diplomacy failure. And the reason for denial by the Crow ranged from their own fear of a shortage to their anger at the Lakota and their raids. But denying bison hunting privileges to those in need forced starving Lakota to avoid the, the Crow Powder River bison lands. They had no other option. In 1868, and all of us remember Margaret Carrington when she was at Fort Fetterman and wrote that wonderful book, there was a passage in the early, pass, in the early pages that got me thinking about this whole presentation. Margaret Carrington asked Cheyenne, why didn't you and the Crow 
Why do you and the Lakota fight the Crow? And the Cheyenne responded, quote, we fight the Crow because they will not take half of the bison and give us peace with the other half, unquote. Now, many individuals who were on the Northern Plains thought that the Crow, thought that the Crow could hold their own against what was coming. But outnumbered two to one initially and outnumbered one to six when it's over with, the Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho begin their occupation of the Powder River country to the Yellowstone River in 1859. How deep was this extent? Reynolds is still mapping as late as 1860 on the Yellowstone and Missouri rivers. In 1860, he sent one of his officers out to report how far had the Lakota pushed the Crow west. Well, they had prevented them from getting to Fort Sarpy, and without the Crow getting 1851 treaty annuities delivered to the post, the Crow suffer and now proclaim the whites no longer friends. On the other hand, the superior Lakota forces and their allies achieved their goal, and several Lakota winter counts record bison plenty in Lakota camps on the Powder River. Now, the story takes a different turn. The story now turns to diplomacy. The Oglala and the Minicoju led this advance into the Powder River country, and now that they got it, they made it clear they're going to keep it. And you can understand the reason why. They came through a terrible suffering disaster beginning in the winter of 1858-59. Now, Americans are starting to eye the Powder River country as a trail known as the Bozeman Trail. And what the initial inquiries are is this, will you let us pass? And the Lakota are saying, no, we're not going to let you have this trail. The Buffalo question became the most important issue in the eyes of the Lakota, and it makes a figure in every one of their councils, one of the informers noted. Since crow denial of access to bison drove the Lakota to take the Powder River from the former, the Lakota now insisted that no road shall ever be laid in our lands again, nor will we permit travel over it. At this point, the Lakota protection of bison emerges as a major reason for their opposition to American expansion. You know the story. Despite Lakota warnings, don't come down the Powder River, the Americans are determined to put that Bozeman Trail in. And the war for the Bozeman Trail with the Americans begins on June 20th, 1866 at Fort Laramie, when efforts to gain Lakota consent for that trail, the Bozeman Trail, collapsed. Once the talks collapsed, the United States Army begins its construction of military posts. And the story continues with the Fort Fetterman Bat Massacre in December 1868. John B. Sanborn, an American negotiator for peace, in 1867 pinpoints the Lakota reason for war with the Americans, observing, quote, they have waged and carried on this war for the purpose of defending their ancient possession and the possessions acquired from the Crow Indians by conquest after bloody war, unquote. The Bozeman Trail, you know the story and its struggle well, but the subsequent peace negotiations would determine who would control the former 1851 Crow Powder River lands. 
Alternative routes to Montana reduced the American need for the trail, but both Crow and Lakota leaders are seeking something out of a settlement. The Crow want this. They want the United States government to pay for the Powder River country that the Lakota now occupy. That's the Crow plan. What the Lakota want to do is they want to protect what they have gained on the Powder River. So now the negotiations begin. Once the negotiations begin, the Lakota make one effort with the Crow to get the Crow to join them in a defense against the United States efforts to take the Powder River. And in 1867, the Lakota offer the Crow 3,000 ponies if you will defend the Powder River against the Americans. But the Crow refuse simply because they've already made that decision. We want to sell our lands that the Lakota occupy to the U.S. in the coming treaties. Preliminary negotiations begin for the Powder River in 1867, and it's quite interesting to note that Blackfoot, the Crow leader, is the intermediary between the Lakota camps and the United States. So you want to keep in mind how tight these negotiations are with all parties. American negotiators, yes. American negotiators ultimately will come up with a settlement in 1868 with the Lakota, and what the Lakota will get is the Crow Powder River lands in Article 16 of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. The next month in May of 1868, the Mountain Crow go to Fort Laramie and they sign their treaty where they have just lost the Powder River country. And in losing the Powder River country, this is now renamed unceded Indian country. It's under Lakota claim and the Crow get moved north. The Crow will not get compensated for their loss of the Powder River until after World War II and the Indian Claims Commission because the U.S. never paid for the taking and now the Lakota have it. And what the Lakota get are 55,000 55, square miles of land from the 1868 treaty. The story doesn't end there though, just a footnote. If you look at this map, you notice something. The Little Bighorn occurred in 1876 on the Crow Reservation. And the story goes, the Lakota were fighting to protect the Black Hills, but if you look at this map, Sitting Bull and the others are hundreds of miles away from the Black Hills. What they're protecting are the bison. They're protecting the bison, an Article 16 right that they had. So the road to the Little Bighorn began with a warm fall in 1858 that stimulated a blue tongue epidemic, devastating bison herds on Lakota lands. Young men who want to gain their reputations break the peace the year before and despite intermarriage with the Crow, seek their reputations. The timing of these men's raids was unfortunate because after the Blue Tongue epidemic, the Lakota were forced to ask the Crow for bison, but the latter refused, violating their obligation to share, and the Lakota took. Once denied, they push into the Powder River not to feed a rope trade, but to avoid their own demise. 
So the Northern Lakota made not a raid for full-scale, so made not a raid, but a full-scale occupation of the Crow Powder River lands. And once on the Powder River, their bison gains are against the Crow will be protected in 1866 and again in 1876. This creates a richer story layered by complex Lakota cultural, environmental, and political motives that drove their occupation of Crow lands, bookend by two treaties, the Treaty of 1851 and the Treaty of 1868. Thank you.